We are going to be reading two chapters in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn today, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 10. Francie wasn't much of a baby. She was skinny and had a blue look and didn't thrive. Katie nursed her doggedly, although the neighbor woman told her that her milk was bad for the child. Francie was put on the bottle soon enough because Katie's milk stopped suddenly when the child was three months old. Katie worried. She consulted her mother. Mary Romilly looked at her, sighed, but said nothing. Katie went to the midwife for advice. The woman asked her a foolish question. Where did you buy your fish of a Friday? Patty's Market. Why? You wouldn't be after seeing an old woman in there buying a codfish head for her cat, would you now? Yes, I see her every week. She did it! She dried up your milk on you. Oh no! She put the eye on you. But why? Jealous she is, because you're too happy with that pretty Irish lad of yours. Jealous? An old woman like that? A witch she is. I knew her back in the old country. Sure, and didn't she come over on the same boat as myself? When she was young, she was in love with a wild county carry boy. And didn't he go and get her that way? And he wouldn't go to the priest with her when her old father went after him. He slipped away on a boat for America in the dead of the night. Her baby died when it was born. Then she sold her soul to the devil, and he did give her the power of drying up the milk of cows and nanny goats and of girls married to young boys. I remember she looked at me in a funny way. Twas then she put the eye on you. How can I get my milk back? I'll tell you what you must do. Wait until the moon is full. Then make a little image out of a lock of your curling hair, a cutting from your fingernail, and a bit of rag sprinkled with holy water. Christen it Nelly Grogan, and that's the witch's name, and stick three rusty pins in it. That will spoil her power over you, and sure your milk will be flowing again like the River Shannon. That will be a quarter. Katie paid her. When the moon was full, she made the little doll and stabbed it and stabbed it. She remained dry. Francie sickened on the bottle. In desperation, Katie called Sissy in for advice. Sissy listened to the witch story. A witch, my foot, she said scornfully. It was Johnny who did it, and it wasn't with an eye. In that way, Katie knew that she was pregnant again. She told Johnny, and he started to worry. He had been fairly happy back in the singing waiter business, and he worked pretty often, was steady, didn't drink too much, and brought home most of his money. The news that a second child was on the way made him feel trapped. 
He was only 20 and Katie was 18. He felt that they were both so young and so defeated already. He went out and got drunk after he heard the news. The midwife came around later to see how the charm had worked. Katie told her that the charm had failed since she was pregnant and the witch was not to blame. The midwife lifted her skirt and dug down into a capacious pocket made in her petticoat. She brought up a bottle of evil-looking dark brown stuff. Sure, and there is nothing to worry about, she said. A good dose of this night and morning for three days and you'll come around again. Katie shook her head negatively. You're not afraid of what the priest would be saying to you if you did it? No, it's just that I couldn't kill anything. It wouldn't be killing. It don't count until you felt life. You're not after feeling it move, are you? No. There! She slammed her fist on the table triumphantly. I'll only be charging you a dollar for the bottle. Thank you, I don't want it. Don't be foolish. You're just a bit of a girl and have trouble enough with the one you do be having already. And your man is pretty but not the steadiest boy in the world. The way my man is, is my own business and my baby is no trouble. I'm only after trying to help you out. Thank you and goodbye. The midwife returned the bottle to her petticoat pocket and got up to go. When your time comes, you know where I live. At the door, she gave a last bit of optimistic advice. If you keep running up and down the stairs, maybe you'll have a miscarriage. That fall, in the false warmth of a Brooklyn Indian summer, Katie sat on the stoop and held her sickly baby against the bigness which was another child soon to be born. Pitying neighbors stopped to commiserate over Francie. You'll never raise that one, they told her. Her color ain't good. If the good Lord takes her, it will be for the best. What good is a sickly baby in a poor family? There's too many children on this earth already and no room for the weak ones. Don't say that. Katie held her baby tightly. It's not better to die. Who wants to die? Everything struggles to live. Look at that tree growing up there out of that grating. It gets no sun and water only when it rains. It's growing out of sour earth and it's strong because it's a hard struggle to live and that's making it strong. My children will be strong that way. Ah, oh, somebody ought to cut that tree down, the homely thing. If there was only one tree in the world, you wouldn't think it was beautiful. Or, sorry, if there was only one tree like that in the world, you would think it was beautiful, said Katie. But because there are so many, you just can't see how beautiful it really is. Look at those children. She pointed to a swarm of dirty children playing in the gutter. You could take any one of them and wash him good and dress him up and sit him in a fine house and you would think he was beautiful. You've got fine ideas but a very sick baby, Katie, they told her. 
This baby will live, said Katie fiercely. I'll make it live. And Francie lived, choking and whimpering her way through that first year. Francie's brother was born a week after her first birthday. This time, Katie was not working when the pains came. This time, she bit her lip and did not scream out in her agony. Helpless in her pain, she was capable still of laying the foundation for bitterness and capability. When the strong, healthy boy, howling at the indignity of the birth process, was put to her breast, she felt a wild tenderness for him. The other baby, Francie, in the crib next to her bed, began to whimper. Katie had a flash of contempt for the weak child she had born a year ago, when she compared her to this handsome new son. She was quickly ashamed of her contempt. She knew it wasn't the little girl's fault. I must watch myself carefully, she thought. I am going to love this boy more than the girl, but I mustn't ever let her know. It is wrong to love one child more than the other, but this is something that I cannot help. Sissy begged her to call the boy after Johnny, but Katie insisted that the boy had a right to a name all his own. Sissy got very angry and told Katie a thing or two. Finally, Katie, more in anger than in truth, accused Sissy of being in love with Johnny. Sissy answered, maybe, and Katie shut up. She was a little afraid that if they quarreled further, she would find out that it was so about Sissy loving Johnny. Come on. There we go. Katie called the boy Cornelius after a noble character she had seen a handsome actor represent on the stage. As the boy grew up, the name was changed into Brooklynese and he was known as Neely. Without devious reasoning or complicated emotional processes, the boy became Katie's whole world. Johnny took second place and Francie went to the back of her mother's heart. Katie loved the boy because he was more completely hers than either Johnny or Francie. Neely looked exactly like Johnny. Katie would make him into the kind of man Johnny should have been. He would have everything that was good about Johnny. She would encourage that. She would stomp out all the things that were bad about Johnny as they came up in the boy, Neely. He would grow up and she would be proud of him and he would take care of her all of her days. He was the one that she had to see through. Francie and Johnny would get by somehow, but she would take no chances with the boy. She'd see to it that he more than got by. Gradually, as the children grew up, Katie lost all of her tenderness, although she gained in what people call character. She became capable, hard, and far-seeing. She loved Johnny dearly, but all of the old wild worship faded away. She loved her little girl because she felt sorry for her. It was pity and obligation towards her that she felt rather than love. Johnny and Francie felt the growing change in Katie. 
As the boy grew stronger and handsomer, Johnny grew in weakness and went further and further downhill. Francie felt the way her mother thought about her. She grew in answering hardness against her mother, and this hardness, paradoxically enough, brought them a little closer together because it made them more alike. By the time Neely was a year old, Katie had stopped depending on Johnny. Johnny was drinking heavily. He worked when he was offered one-night jobs. He brought home his wages but kept his tips for liquor. Life was going too swiftly for Johnny. He had a wife and two babies before he was old enough to vote. His life was finished before it had a chance to begin. He was doomed and no one knew it better than Johnny Nolan. Katie had the same hardships as Johnny and she was 19, two years younger. It might be said that she too was doomed. Her life too was over before it began. But there, the similarity ended. Johnny knew he was doomed and accepted it. Katie wouldn't accept it. She started a new life where her old one left off. She exchanged her tenderness for capability. She gave up her dreams and took over hard realities in their place. Katie had a fierce desire for survival, which made her a fighter. Johnny had a hankering after immortality, which made him a useless dreamer. And that was the great difference between these two people who loved each other so well. Chapter 11 Johnny celebrated his voting birthday by getting drunk for three days. When he was coming out of it, Katie locked him in the bedroom where he couldn't get anything more to drink. Instead of sobering up, he started to get delirium tremens. He wept and begged by turns for a drink. He said he was suffering. She told him it was a good thing, that suffering would harden him, would teach him such a lesson that he'd stop drinking. But poor Johnny just wouldn't harden. He softened into a wailing, screaming banshee. Neighbors banged on her door and told her to do something for the poor man. Katie's mouth set in a hard, cold line, and she called out to them to mind their own business. But even as she defied the neighbors, she knew that they would have to move as soon as the month was up. They couldn't live in a neighborhood after the way Johnny was disgracing them. In the late afternoon, his tortured cries unnerved Katie. Crowding the two babies in a buggy, she went over to the factory and had Sissy's long-suffering foreman get her away from her machine. She told Sissy about Johnny, and Sissy said she'd come over and fix him up as soon as she could get away. Sissy consulted a gentleman friend about Johnny. The friend gave her instructions. Accordingly, she bought a half pint of good whiskey, concealed it between her full breasts, and laced her corset cover and buttoned her dress over it. She went over to Katie's and told her that if she could be left alone with Johnny, she'd get him out of it. 
Katie locked Sissy in the bedroom with Johnny. She went back into the kitchen and spent the night with her head in her arms on the table, waiting. When Johnny saw Sissy, his poor mixed-up brain unscrambled for a minute, and he grabbed her arm. You're my friend, Sissy. You're my sister. For God's sake, give me a drink. Take it slow, Johnny, she said in her soft, comforting voice. I've got a drink right here for you. She unbuttoned her waist, releasing a cascade of foaming white embroidered ruffles and dark pink ribbon. The room filled up with the sweet scent of the warm, strong sachet she used. Johnny stared as she undid an intricate bow and loosened her corset cover. The poor fellow remembered her reputation and misunderstood. No, no, sissy, please, he moaned. Don't be a dockle, Johnny. There's a time and a place for everything, and this isn't the time. She pulled out the bottle. He grabbed it. It was warm from her. She let him take a long drink. Then she dug the bottle out of his clutching fingers. He quieted down after the drink, got sleepy, and begged her not to go away. She promised. Without bothering to tie up her ribbons or button her waist, she lay on the bed beside him. She put her arm under his shoulders and he rested his cheek on her bare, warm, scented breast. He slept and tears came from under his closed lids, and they were warmer than the flesh they fell on. She lay awake, holding him in her arms and staring into the darkness. She felt towards him as she would have felt towards her babies had they only lived to know her warm love. She stroked his curling hair and smoothed his cheek gently. When he moaned in his sleep, she soothed him with the kind of words she would have spoken to her babies. Her arm cramped and she tried to move it. He woke up for a moment, clutched her tightly and begged her not to leave him. When he spoke to her, he called her mother. Whenever he woke up and got afraid, she gave him a swallow of whiskey. Towards morning, he woke. His head was clearer, but he said it hurt. He jerked away from her and moaned. Come back to mama, she said in her soft, fluttering voice. She opened her arms wide, and once more he crept into them and rested his cheek on her generous breast. He wept quietly. He sobbed out his fears and his worries and his bewilderment at the way things were in the world. She let him talk. She let him weep. She held him the way his mother should have held him as a child, which she never did. Sometimes Sissy wept with him. When he had talked himself out, she gave him what was left of the whiskey, and at last he fell into a deep, exhausted sleep. She lay very still for a long time, not wanting him to feel her withdrawing from him. Towards dawn, his tight holding of her hand relaxed. Peace came into his face and made it boyish again. Sissy put his head on the pillow, expertly undressed him, and put him under the covers. She threw the empty whisk whiskey bottle down the air shaft. She figured that what Katie didn't know couldn't possibly bother her. 
She tied her pink ribbons carelessly and adjusted her waist. She closed the door very softly when she went out. Sissy had two great failings. She was a great lover and a great mother. She had so much of tenderness in her, so much of wanting to give of herself to whoever needed what she had, whether it was her money, her time, the clothes off her back, her pity, her understanding, her friendship, or her companionship and love. She was mother to everything that came her way. She loved men, yes. She loved women, too, and old people, and especially children. How she loved children. She loved the down and outers. She wanted to make everybody happy. She had tried to seduce the good priest who heard her in frequent confessions because she felt sorry for him. She thought he was missing the greatest joy on earth by being committed to a life of celibacy. She loved all the scratching curs on the street and wept for the gaunt scavenging cats who slunk around Brooklyn corners with their sides swollen, looking for a hole in which they might bring forth their young. She loved the sooty sparrows and thought that the very grass that grew in the lots was beautiful. She picked bouquets of white clover in the lots, believing they were the most beautiful flowers God ever made. Once she saw a mouse in her room. The next night she set out a tiny box for him with cheese crumbs in it. Yes, she listened to everybody's troubles, but no one listened to hers. But that was right, because Sissy was a giver and never a taker. When Sissy came into the kitchen, Katie looked at Sissy's disordered clothing with swollen and suspicious eyes. I'm not forgetting, she said with pitiful, dig pitiful dignity, that you are my sister, and I hope you remembered that too. Don't be such a heimdick. I'm Dickisher. <laughs> ass. Don't be such an ass, said Sissy, knowing what Katie meant. But she smiled deeply into Katie's eyes. Katie was suddenly reassured. How's Johnny? Johnny will be fine when he wakes up. But for Christ's sweet sake, don't nag him when he wakes up. Don't nag him, Katie. But he's got to be told. If I hear that you nag him, I'll get him away from you. I swear it, even though I'm your sister. Katie knew what she meant, knew that she meant it, and was a little frightened. I won't then, she mumbled. Not this time. Now you're growing up into a woman, approved Sissy as she kissed Katie's cheek. She felt sorry for Katie as well as for Johnny. Katie broke down then and cried. She made hard, ugly noises because she hated herself for crying, yet she couldn't help it. Sissy had to listen, to go through again all that she had gone through with Johnny, only this time from Katie's angle. Sissy handled Katie differently than she had handled Johnny. She had been gentle and maternal with Johnny because he needed that. Sissy acknowledged the steeliness that was in Katie. 
She hardened to that steeliness as Katie finished her story. And now you know it all, sissy. Johnny's a drunk. Well, everybody's something. We all got a tag of some kind. Take me now. I never took a drink in my life. But do you know, she stated with honest and consummate ignorance, that there are some people who talk about me and call me a bad woman? Can you imagine that? I admit that I smoke a sweet corporal once in a while, but bad? Well, sissy, the way you carry on with men makes people... Katie, don't nag. All of us are what we have to be, and everyone lives the kind of life it's in him to live. You've got a good man, Katie, but he drinks, and he will always, and he always will until he dies. There it is, he drinks. You must take that along with the rest. What rest? You mean the not working, the staying out all night, the bums he has for friends? You married him. There was something about him that caught your heart. Hang on to that and forget the rest. Sometimes, I don't know why I married him. You lie. You know why you married him. You married him because you wanted him to sleep with you, but you were too religious to take a chance without a church wedding. How you talk. The whole thing was that I wanted to get him away from someone else. It was the sleeping. It always is. If it is good, the marriage is good. If it is bad, the marriage is bad. No, there are other things. What other things? Well, maybe there are, conceded Sissy. If there are other good things too, that's so much velvet. You're wrong. That might be important to you, but... It's important to everybody, or should be. Then all marriages would be happy. Oh, I admit that I liked the way he danced, how he sang a song, the way he looked. <laughs> you're saying what I'm saying, but you're using your own words. How can you win out with a person like Sissy, thought Katie. She's got everything figured out her way. Maybe her way is a good way to figure things out. I don't know. She is my own sister, but people talk about her. She is a bad girl, and there's no getting around that. When she dies, her soul will wander through purgatory, through all eternity. I have often told her that, and she always answers that it wouldn't wander alone. If Sissy dies before I do, I must have masses said for the repose of her soul. Maybe after a while she'll get out of purgatory, because even if they say she is bad, she is good to all the people in the world who are lucky enough to run across her. God will have to take that into consideration. Suddenly, Katie leaned over and kissed Sissy on the cheek. Sissy was astonished because she could not know Katie's thoughts. Maybe you're right, Sissy. Maybe you're wrong. With me, it comes down to this. Aside from his drinking, 
I love everything else about Johnny, and I will try to be good to him. I will try to overlook. She said no more. In her heart, Katie knew that she was not the overlooking kind. Francie lay awake in the wash basket set up near the kitchen range. She lay sucking her thumb and listening to the conversation, but she learned nothing from it, being but two years old at the time.